Let's go. Should we go? Yep. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. All right. The Acme Academy. <laughs> I got it wrong already. <laughs> it's going to be a long night in this, paradise. Oh, God, it's going to be a long night. Believe me. <laughs> you have no idea. The Acme Writing Academy is on the air, beaming to you from Acme Broadcast Headquarters in Venice Beach, California. This is your host, Rick Crisman, along with Jim Frank, Martello Vasquez, Mike Magnuson, and Bob Clark, welcoming you, the listener, to today's walkabout through the annals of literature. For today, we are concerning ourselves with nothing less than the great books of the Western world. What are they? Why are they considered great? And how might you, as a writer, ascend to these hallowed ranks? Okay, my my wife my wife did this. She went to eight lists of great books, and they were Life Hack, Guardian, Modern Library, Harvard Bookstore, Marie Claire, Reader's Digest, Le Monde, and The Telegraph. And they each listed their top ten great books. And uh there was some correlation. Uh, any any guess as to which made the most lists? Yeah, are they by title? By title, yeah. Specific books. Hmm. James Pride Joyce. <laughs> James Joyce, the book. Uh, Ulysses. <laughs> I think Ulysses did not make any list. Oh really? Uh, nope. She did. A, she did a. She did a. Top a ten greatest books of all time. Right. She did a spreadsheet. Well, it's got well, to be War and Peace then. The top book that made six out of eight lists was The Great Gatsby. Oh, Good. man, that book fucking sucks. And, and it was, listen, first... <laughs> no, it doesn't. First, second, second, <laughs> fourth, Christ. fifth, and fifth. You know, everything you can shit on a lot of books, but okay. you cannot shit on a great. No, it's Gatsby. a great, it's a great book. Oh no, I'll shit out all fucking day long. You want to? Oh, let's start. Let's go. <laughs> Despite the, on, the, the great, great oh, it's tag team against those two. <laughs> just, the great, the great Gatsby. <laughs> Despite the peel, <laughs> is, is Hemingway in there? <laughs> uh, yes, he is, but but he's not or on my. He's he's not on the top of the top. The second the second place. Second place was a tie with four each between Jane Eyre and To Kill a Mockingbird. Whoa. I'd never include either one. Then two books were on three lists, and that was Lord of the Rings and Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, Pride and Prejudice should be up there, I think. And then there were six. There's a sublime and the ridiculous. Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Exactly, right? And Pride Pride and Prejudice. Prejudice? Right. And there were four books or I'm sorry, six books that made uh, two lists. They were Wuthering Heights, Anna Karenina, 1984, Grapes of Wrath, Catch-22, and Proust, uh, In Search of Lost Time. Anyhow, I, I present this only to say that maybe we should assume that there is some meat on this bone and that it's a meaningful question to ask ourselves, what makes a book great? What's the criteria for greatness? How does it come hmm. about? I mean... Does an author just sit at his desk on a fine Monday morning, sharpen his quill, and sit down to write his masterwork of literature? Is that how it happens? Is it intentional? Is it intentional? I think, I think that none of those writers intended to write anything less than a work of art. And I think that's probably the one thing that they want to do. But I think it's also true, as has been mentioned, that it's a, 
entertainment plays a huge role. No one wants to write a great book that no one's going to read because it bores the shit out of them. I mean, it's just that simple. So has anybody told Thomas Pynchon? Yeah, (laughs) I think, well, you know, that one, I think, is a lot of question of taste, you know, like David Foster Wallace, you know, I love Um, him. I I do, too. But I I know plenty of people who don't like what he writes. You know, when we think about the list that you you mentioned, I was going to talk about Pride and Prejudice this evening, because I also think, you know, that that meets the, the, the question of durability. I mean, that's a book that I think just about everyone reads at one point in their life of they have to read literature in college or high school. So and I know that the reactions to that are going to vary quite a bit, but I just I, I happened to pick it up the other day again after a long time and I started reading it. And, uh, you know, it, it captured my attention for 20 pages before I had to put it down in grade papers. You mentioned uh, this business of writing a, a work of art. Yeah, it's got to be new. I mean, if we're, you know, Ezra Pound's edict about making it new, I think is, I think, you know, it's what modernists struggled with at the beginning of the 19th century when they're trying to come up with new ways of expressing themselves as they see things like the novel begin to take full shape and the short story as well. So there are a lot of people doing new things and trying to do things in a different way. And I think that that's sort of an aesthetic awareness that a lot of writers have. But, you know, there's some great things that have been written in, I think we would probably call relatively conventional forms where writers aren't trying to do anything especially new. Sometimes they're just taking on a new subject or like in To Kill a Mockingbird that (laughs) we haven't seen before. So that probably is a new way of looking at things as well, isn't it? I, I think it's interesting you should mention that book because I don't think Harper Lee sat down to write a great masterpiece of Western literature. I think if you read the previous book to that that wasn't published, I think she was just trying to buy herself some good sentences and tell a story. And that she had greatness thrust upon her, you know? Well, maybe. But I also think she knew that she was writing about something new in the sense that she was writing a book that challenged a lot of uh, opinions in the South about how justice is meted out for people who are African-Americans and how whites react to that. So I think that was new. I think for her, it wasn't so much the form that was new, but I think it was the subject matter that was new. There you go. So, So yeah, subject matter and theme. Yeah. Right, Bob? I was wondering about that. Let me, let me call Melville. You know, he said, uh, to uh, produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. And it seems like all great books, of uh, what's considered great literature, uh, they all have a very expansive theme and, and story to tell. So are we talking about what are great books or what's the writer's what, intention when right. they're going to write books? I, or? I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure out what, you know, I'd like to know what is it about these stories and these these books that makes them what they are. What are they doing that's that's that someone else isn't doing? There's a difference. There's a reason okay. why these these books all share one thing in common for sure. Hundred years later, they're still in print. Right. I guess, it's, but you know, me, we got to address the elephant. I'm curious as to what makes them stand out and why are they held up in at least in the Western canon of this is this is. I literature. See what I'm saying? Wow, that's, that's a can of worms right there. This is oh, no. 
this is the right, uh, this is the literature which we are going to deem great. And then I guess the question you're you're asking, right? What makes great literature great? What makes great literature great? And 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 I'd like to know who gets to decide. So I the mean, question is, is that who makes out of universities? Right. I, I think it's interesting, you Rick, that you that you uh, looked at pub, uh, publishing houses came up with these lists. Mm. And I think and I think publishing editors, et cetera, the business is, or the mode of production, that, that literature is something that's produced, should be something interesting to writers themselves, though. I mean, I don't think the common reader really gives a shit about that. But as writers, I, I was always fascinated by what, what was the beginning of the mode of production of the novel? What was the proto-novel before it became something that was produced, marketed, sold? And then mm -hmm. even further than that, if we go if we go to who decides what great literature is i think i mentioned this in, in a thread it also becomes a, a part of a national identity look how much moby dick and melville not no pun intended right is yeah. the is the novel we all go to when it's the great novel american novel it's like something that everyone agrees it's mm -hmm. become part of our identity as literate or liter people of literature yeah. Not to say that they're not great stories. I mean, I'm not, I'm not well, saying well, that. Well, maybe even less so. Like, as a matter of fact, I would say with Moby Dick, that's more people say Moby Dick is the greatest American novel. Just it's almost like a tongue in cheek thing at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, what you really find right. is The Great Gatsby. Okay. Now, you want to talk about this in terms of publishing houses. Why do you want to have The Great Gatsby? be the number one book of all time because they sell it to every fucking high school in the United States. You got that right. That's a That's lot right. of units, brother. That's every really book. Wow. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And right. like in Moby Dick, man, you're, you're not going to move that many units to the freshman class at Woodrow Wilson High School, you know? Right. right. Not right. anymore. I mean, <laughs> look, look, look at the, yeah, Catching a Rye yeah. was, was one that was marketed, sold. You know, one I remember I had to read in high school. No, I think it's an interesting question. This idea of how the, how it gets sold or produced, or or who says what is, makes it, who says that something is great? Yeah, I do. But do you, and and you do. We all do. I like that, right? You know. I think I, th I think when we get to that, so it's the subject matter that that seems to be that stands out with great literature. True. Not always. Well, it's a. It depends, you know, like I think like, you know, like according to like, you know, the, the literature is mighty. You can you can see how some people would hear that and in a way take great offense. You know, like could there be a more masculine image than that? Yeah. Like some right. literature is going to be a mighty theme and a come over and it's going to kick your ass. Right. Oh, okay? yeah. Well, is there any more masculine you know, image than a sperm whale? Would... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can, I, I, to get back to our our points about writing, I can't really think of what anybody would typify, in most cases, a great novel that isn't also great writing. And I think, you know, if we're going to be talking about writing and maybe, you know, as you pointed out, Mike, uh, or as you've been wont to say in the past, a lot of people go to to what they consider to be great writing because they see things in it that they they want to work on in their own writing well you know i think i think i think let's start let's think about reading first i mean you know we, yeah. we, we did our, our appropriate moment you got to shit on publishers because that's always fun you know of fun. course you know, but it's not arbitrary they don't just pick random books and say 
we're going to make no. this the book for everybody. No, no there's something, no. There's something no, no, behind no, 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 it, no, no. you know? There's a real thing. But I, mean, I mean, the thing is, is we, we determine that what we like a great love, like just say we're not thinking of the world as writers. Say you're a young philosophy major at a university or something like that, or just a high school kid with a curious mind. You know, you, you latch onto a book that touches you in some way that thinks sort of how you think. You know, we always talk about you read a book and you encounter a new way of looking at the world. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I think like you, like somehow the book touches you. And we all individually enjoy some books over others just for those reasons. I think that's true of, of something like Fifty Shades of Grey, too, speaking of touching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like, you know, this, this reaches out and touches an audience. And a lot of people say it was great. You know, it's a, it's a great book. Shit. They saw that, like, there was an entire town in Maine that got rich, you know, pulping the trees to make the books, I guess, you know? <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, uh, the Hardy Boys, you know, every Saturday I would mow the lawn and I'd get paid $2. And then I'd walk up to the local bookstore and buy the newest Hardy Boys hardback, go home, sit in a chair, motionless yeah. until that book was read. And I thought it was the greatest book ever. And all of my friends agreed, right? I can't tell you how crushed I was later in life when I found out that there was no Franklin W. Dixon. <laughs> but still, my experience was valid. And it's one of the things that led me into, into the love of reading. To your point, Mike, about and enthusiasm, the enthusiasm you feel for a book. Oh, man, you just know when it happened. You remember, like, the first kind of book book that you read, you know? Like, cool. you know, when your mom wasn't reading it to you at night or something like that? Yep. And there you were in sixth grade, you know, down in the basement reading this book that you got from the library. Lolita. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, it was Candy. I remember candy. I can't remember the name. <laughs> candy. Remember Candy? <laughs> Fear of flying. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. All right, see, everybody's hands where you can see them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think I, I, have to, I have to say about enthusiasm, and um, I, I've been thinking about this question ever since it came up. Why I continue to go and reject the great works that I was told that I had read because they were great works. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that stuff. And that's not, you know, something that really inspires me to read, but my new obsession, my new reading list as an Argentinian or blah, blah, if you hear you, they tell you, you know, you don't, you're not a Latino if you're actually in a Latino country, right? Over here, they tell you you're Latino. Um, and I started reading the great works of literature of Argentina, of Brazil, of Chile. And, that's what I've been enth- and very enthusiastic of lately. You know, I start off mm-hmm. with Roberto Bolaño about five years ago with 2000, was it 2666? Before right. or then, it was what Manuel Pugh, oh, yeah. the great Argentine writer, The Kisses of Spider Woman. Yeah, it's a good book. Um, Ernesto Sabato, the, the Tunnel, which is basically a copy of Notes from the Underground from Dostoevsky. Those books began to shape me and, and see. And, and I don't know, maybe there's something what Mike said, right? Finally, I found something that was connecting to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Something that was connecting to me, and because I'm, I'm a writer. And then one of the problems I was having as a writer, beginning as a writer, I was imitating American writers, or I was, there was nothing to do with the so-called identity that I'm supposed to be writing about. And, and the irony of it all is, is now I'm going back to reading 
William Faulkner because then I found out most of the Latino writers read Faulkner. But I, I, that gets at a point that that I think shapes a lot of us, at least as readers. A lot of what we select to read is based on conversations we have with our friends and our peers and, and people whose judgment we re- respect. I mean, I have a neighbor who tells me all the time that the Tecumseh five-horse engine is the best damn lawnmower engine ever made, but his lawnmower never runs, and he can't <laughs> even fix it. And, you know, is, so, that, I mean, is that the kind of engine you have on your boat? It did run. Remember, remember when he went flying by the house like thirty miles an hour? It went away. It it ran away from the dock. That was a boat. I thought thought it was a a canoe. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to catch a big fucking fish in that, and you guys are all going to be impressed. (laughs) Yeah, but when you pull it in, by the time you get back, it's going to be eaten by sharks. It's gonna pull. It's gonna pull me to shore, actually. But Jim, you make an you make an excellent point there. I think when it comes to to books, our tastes are largely shaped to a, a larger degree than I would probably admit by by the people I know and the the suggestions that they they make. But I also, you know, if you read certain authors, they mention books in their in their novels that they think are tremendous, and then. I sometimes go seek those books out too. There's certain people whose judgment we trust, and maybe that's in part what's shaped the canon, such as it may be at this point. Um, I think that I think, I think that's what kind of subverts the canon. I mean, we to a certain extent, yeah. The punk years when you're 17 years old in the 80s, and you're you know listening to the Doors and read mm, a t- right. awful awful poetry by Jim Morrison. You're the American Knife mm. fit, fit <laughs> I mean, like a purple glove. Yeah. And, the, and the best part of the biography is like there's a chapter or an index all the books that he read so i made a yeah. list and i started going down everything like you know arthur rainbow proust baudelaire. and then after that yeah baudelaire and uh, who gives a shit about jim morrison today well you know what well, i mean i know like we're talking about what what great book i mean this just seems like a, a in a certain way it's a, it's a worn subject it's warm because, you know, oh, we have to admire books and everybody you know, tells you you're never going to be a writer unless you read a lot and so forth. But, you know, when, when we were thinking about talking about this, I couldn't get up my mind that, that what's happened to me, and I'm assuming this is true of all of us, you know, we, you know, it's not like we haven't been doing this shit for a million years, you know? I mean, God, I've been serious about being a writing writer for 35 years now. You know, I mean, I've read some books. and I've, I was an English major. I went to graduate school in English, you know? I mean, I I know what a good book is, I guess, according to that framework that you learn there. But then something else happens to you. You go through a life now, like in, in my case, and, you know, Jim's and Martell, you know, became English teachers. Mm-hmm. Right. Writing teachers. And I remember about the late 90s, you know, when I had just, you know, I, I, it takes a long time to get through the process of, you know, getting a good books coming out and shit. And it's, it's, it's a tough thing, you know. And, and to me... All of a sudden, I was I was marking up papers. So I got to a point in my life where I didn't want to read a word written by anyone. I don't care how good they were for the rest of my life. No, I mean, I, no, I, I, see, I hear you. You know, no, I, I, there's a happy ending to this story and not the kind that you think it is. <laughs> so like, so <laughs> hands in the air. <laughs> Here we go. So I have started reading again. And it was Bolaño for me, too, part of my association with Marcello. Actually, before that, he, he showed me some crazy texts of Subcomandante Marcos. 
Oh yeah. Which were Don just, Dorito. Don Dorito. Yeah. So this this is these are actual subversive texts, you know, revolutionary texts written by, uh, in Chiapas from the Zapatistas, where their spokesman is a cockroach named Don Dorito, basically. <laughs> he comes and yells at Soup Comandante Marcos, and then Don Dorito's cockroaches riding around on a, on a turtle holding a paper clip, and he's going to march on Mexico City. The, the turtle's name is Pegasus. <laughs> <laughs> this was the craziest shit I ever saw. And I thought, you know, like, man, that, that, that's just not allowed. Right. And here's a, here's a leader of a revolutionary uh, faction, right? Uh, resulting after the NAFTA and all that and the uprising yep. Chiapas, who happened to be the uh, supercomandant de Marcos, is, was a uh, communications and philosophy professor at a, union, a UNAM university. So he puts on a ski mask and he reads the manual of, uh, I guess, the American uh, Army Manual of Survival or whatever. <laughs> and he goes and he teaches a bunch of local indigenous people who 90% don't speak Spanish how to fight. And they start an uprising. And in, in the jungle, he starts writing these crazy fucked up communiques and smuggles them, <laughs> he smuggles them out through journalists who would come and see them, come and see him, and they would publish him on, uh, on the e EZLN, Zapatista.org. Yeah. Uh -huh. No, I'm get, I was at a point when I encountered this. I'm serious. I, I wasn't going to read ever again. I'd rather watch the goddamn tractor pull on TV. Or, you know, paint drying would be better than reading anything. Mm -hmm. right. And this crazy ass shit, all of a sudden I thought, you know, like, man, there, there's something wonderful there. Maybe just because that would not be allowed in the American workshop environment in which I was teaching and in which I was raised. Hmm. Could you imagine a talking cockroach? Hmm. You know, try running that through your workshop next time. Paper, paper clip is a cool. sword or a weapon. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 get the, I get the enthusiasm part. Uh, when I started reading right, that, so like, but, I mean, yeah. So I, you see this stuff; it's crazy, it's fun, it's like it's totally different. And then I then I read, you know, Bolaño's two six six six. I've been hardcore reader ever since. You know, savage, was in, savage detectives. Yeah, I think you know. Again, one of the things you're pointing out about the leader of the Chiapas uprising is that he's he's posing things in an entirely new and different way. He's not just your you know run of the mill revolutionary oh, no. who wants to you know tear everything down i mean this guy this guy has a, a unique and new way of seeing the world in re regard to a certain set of events and you know I, I think it's that newness and freshness that that we respond to i have found anyways you know that i have been drawn to literature not written in america in particular you know i love the south america because it's, it's, it's a different way of spinning a tale you know mm -hmm. european literature there's a guy I teach with at Pacific named Chris Abani, uh, yep. an African novelist. Man, that shit is something else. Is it? Like, you've never heard anything like that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Do you think that when you read these writers from around the world that you recognize something about yourself or the way you think in them and didn't expect to find it there? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe that's putting too much of the onus on my own ego as a reader. Well, I'm just trying to follow up on something that you said earlier, because I, I, I do think you're kind of right about that. I mean, you know, someone who's spent a lot of time reading literature in another language, I, I'm beginning to ask myself if that's the reason why I prefer certain writers as opposed to others, because I, 
I see something in the way they think that's familiar to me, even though they're from somewhere else. I think that's. I think I think most feelings and emotions are universal, aren't they? You know, I think so too. It doesn't matter where the story's coming from. Some some human emotions uh, and things, we're just universal. It's part of being human. Well, we can relate to to anything that's well written. Doesn't matter. I don't think what part of the world it comes from, does it? I don't know. It, I think it does. If you start looking at the history of literature and how you know, like the British in um, British India, or you know the French in their in their colonies, and you look the Spanish, you can see those literary canons were a nationalist. There was a nationalistic identity toward, uh, attached to them, right? Yeah. And in yeah. one way or the other one, they were. What's the word? They were not only colonizing these islands; they were colonizing literature. Their literature was being imposed on these people, and then. You, know, you would come up and try to get up into that next class system where it would be part British, then you get into neocolonialism. And then you become, you become, you start mimicking those masters, you know, like yeah. Dickens or Conrad and all that. And yeah. then, and, and I don't know, is that universal? I mean, did the British go through that as well? Yeah, because uh, if you know the writer V.S. Naipaul, who I yes. think... He's he, from um, Trinidad Tobago. or Yeah, he's a colossal uh, jerk to some people. But I mean... He has a book that's called The Mimic Men that is talking exactly. precisely exactly. about what you're talking about right there. And mm -hmm. it's sort of the revenge of the empire. I mean, after long periods of colonization, they returned to the countries that colonized them. And he went to England and really never went right. back to Trinidad. Right. And more or less renounced his uh, West Indian uh, heritage to a large extent. But yet he wrote novels like uh, Bend in the River or The Mimic Men, which... You know, demonstrate a new way of thinking about the world, but he he's he's more than comfortable in the, you know, the familiar confines of a traditional novel. I'm not quite sure what to say about that, other than, in that case, maybe it's a new voice again. I think it's yes. back to newness again. I think I think uh, you know this kind of came up <clears throat> a little in our discussions, online discussions about genre, and how uh, there's the guy who starts the genre. But he's not part of it. And I'd, I'd made the joke that, you know, Jesus was not a Christian, right? Right. Led Zeppelin right. was not a heavy metal band. Right. So, so, <laughs> so these, these are the greats. And, and going back again to Moby Dick, and I have to say, I recently read that book after, you know, I'm probably the last person on the planet to read it, expecting no. a seafaring yeah. adventure. And instead, you get this thing well, that's comple that. completely nuts, and it's it's nuts <laughs> in a totally exalting way. I mean, it's just it springs yeah. off the page. He can be talking about, you know, the bone length, the rib lengths of a sperm whale, and it's delightful. How does he do that? I have no idea. <laughs> and meanwhile, the whole plot, right? Captain Ahab against the whale. Fucking Ahab dies in one sentence on page five twenty. <laughs> That's all you get. But but so so Mo, you've got Moby Dick, and then you've got all the other seafaring adventures, right? <laughs> da, da 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 da. But Moby Dick stands out in terms of its just completely nutso singularity. No, anyhow. Right. Like, oh, it's it's page eighty six in the Confederacy of Dunces, where like they do what, what do they do to the cat? Oh, God. The, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it was like 
whipping his pudding to the image of his dead cat or something. Oh, it's his dog. <laughs> Remember that? It's his dog, yeah. Well, that was he was great jerking point. off in a sock. He was jerking dunces. off in his sock. Thinking about his dog. Writing all his shit on one of those big chief fucking tablets. I, I was going to say, you guys as writing professors, are you finding that this is what, where people are maybe holding themselves back and not being willing to take the plunge and to be nuts and to be singularly themselves in order to write a great book. No, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's that. I think that when we're talking about this, like, you know, we're talking about the Confederacy of dunces and, you know, laughing because it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a guy book sort of with, you know, farts and burps and masturbation and other fun things like that. That guy's like, <laughs> wonderful thing. yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Wonderful thing. We, what, we, we, we can't help this shit. Right. So you, you take a class for me. You may not be drawn to that my material. Thank God, you know you're more <laughs> civilized than me and wouldn't be drawn to that. But yet, my enthusiasm for it, like how much I think this stuff is great, you shouldn't put yourself off from that. Uh, and just the opposite, I know other people who teach know the completely serious. And if the, and I, I'm not, I'm trying not even to say that in a pejorative way, but you know, a different kind mm-hmm. of writing, right? Yeah, than I yeah, like. I, I kind of like it funny. I, I like kind of grotesquerie and stuff just because I don't know. I, I, I can't help it, you know? So the student who takes somebody like me and somebody who teaches the completely opposite thing has to find, like, is there something of value of this crazy stuff that I like that I can, that the writer can take for themselves? You know what I'm saying? Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the problem. You get into, you get into boxes. Well, I only like American realist fiction. I will not no, read stories that don't have four scenes in them. Even, even, yeah, you're right. Like even when you find yourself, or I found myself in that type of classroom you know, when I was a student, right? And I call it the protected reading, where the the professor is telling you how to read something. Mm. This this is the meaning of this particular story. Oh, it's and it's the protected reading. God forbid if you go anywhere. Yeah. Outside of that, you know, a basic pseudo formalistic, new critical, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, nothing but it, but the text, and, and that's also it was such a that's a hard that's a turn off, you know, that that idea. And I think that also happens when when as far as happening in an MFA program or any type of writing class, right? You have to read something a certain way. Maybe not so much in an MFA, but I remember wanting to be an English major. And I couldn't, I kept dropping the classes because it was just horrible. You know, you're di- dissecting these things oh, and, no. and the patient dies on the table. No, I, no, I, think, I think it goes back to enthusiasm. I, exactly. It goes, it, it goes back to when I finally took that class my third year, finally getting through all the bullshit of getting into that four-year college and getting my third year when I'm actually an English major. And I take Victorian Lit. And that professor, Oliver... S. Buckton, the third. Yeah. You know, clicking his pen. Right. Yeah, old brick, clicking his pen nervously, and just fucking a song of enthusiasm when he would talk about, you know, the literature that he was teaching. You know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Yep. You know, I mean, he could just make that, or the Wilkie Collins, the the Moonstone. The Moonstone. And when this guy, when this guy talked about, and the way, and the way he came around, and all the side things, all the biographical information that he had of of their perversion and the Victorian era, you know, creepiness, right? Mm -hmm. It's like fuck yeah, it's like being in a 
biography slash novel enthusiasm. You know, I had the same experience. I spent one year at University of Exeter as an undergrad and taking English and philosophy. And we had a professor, this guy, just whatever your image of Sir Toby Belch is, it's this guy. And we were doing Yeats' The Second Coming. And uh, he is like dragging his overweight body across the stage, intoning, what rough beast slouches towards Bethlehem. And, and you know, you know, the hair is standing up on our arms. It's like, oh, my God, this is like the fucking greatest shit ever. And, I, and to this day, I've memorized that poem, and I just like, it, it applies to everything. And, and That's worth every penny of your admission, you know? <laughs> it is. No, but you, you know that thing that that I was trying to get at where, you know, like you got to have one teacher who does one thing. Like as, as a developing writer, you have to be open to a bunch of different ways of liking books. And the bigger thing, and I, I taught in an environment that wasn't really good for quite a while where I would like teaching stuff. And then people I taught with would tell my students that, well, you shouldn't be reading that stuff. It's shit. But I, I found after having lived through that, which was bad, it was bullshit, like that, that kind of cutting each other down. I found that like in order to really get along and liking books and, and having variable ideas of what's great, man, you teach with other people, they're into something fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Right. You know, they're, they're not trying to hurt their students by liking no. a different thing than you like. No, you know, the students should. It's just like they're going through Whole Foods, man. They got all this great stuff, and they just pick what they want. Or then they well, isn't it how great? Li- <laughs> an, an example would be like the Black Mountain poets, Charles Olson, yeah. Robert Creeley. It's such enthusiasm, and apparently, I remember reading this in a in some biography that the way they they would cross teach different types of genres. So if you were an expert in maybe you know in, in forms of poetry, Villanelles, Sistinas, all that. Go and teach a class in physics or cross-teach, like change, or see things from a different perspective and get the full experience of knowledge. But that's all coming from enthusiasm. You know, you can imagine being in that class and say, fuck, I'm glad I woke up this morning and showed up here. Right. And you you go home and you start pecking away or you just start writing shit down or scrawling it wherever you can. That's... That's the energy I think you need to get through this life, if you know one would say as a writer or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, enthusiasm. I keep going back to that. I don't know why. I know. I know. That's. I. I mean, Mike. I had the same analogous experience to you in the music business, where, you know, after thirty-five years of doing it, I didn't listen to music anymore. It was partly because my kids grew up and left. Because when they were home and I'd drive them to school, I'd let them own the radio. And they'd listen to Kiss FM, you know, Top 40 and your Destiny's Child and Eminem and rap and all this shit that I would never, right. ever listen to. But I'd listen to it through their ears and I would feel their enthusiasm and I would dig the shit out of it. And I still do. I listen to the, those songs and it's just it's just marvelous. And this whole business of, of putting down this book or that book or whatever, you're just missing an opportunity. You know, if you can find a way of seeing the joy of something through somebody else's eyes who's enthusiastic about it, then you have given yourself, you know, greater joy and satisfaction in your life. It sounds like I'm getting all, you know, Caleb Gabron here, but but just to your point about enthusiasm, I think it's everything. When you have writer's block, it's not that you can't write a sentence. I mean, anybody can sit down and write Uh write two to four pages a day, but 
if you're not enthused, it's not going to be any good. Nothing's going to jump off the page. And, and after you've been educated in all this, I think you, like John McNally told me once after, you know, post-MFA, like, says, you know, you got to take responsibility yourself. you got to find, meaning you got to find your own enthusiasms about things. Otherwise, it's just going to be like, well, I don't have an advisor to write for anymore, so I guess I won't write right. anything. My experience was in the restaurant business when I, um, was it after 25 years of cooking? I think f- for six, five, six years after that, I didn't want to fucking see another spaghetti meatball. <laughs> yep. But I also remember, I remember those moments we were cooking. My brother's a genius chef. The thing where we, we would make, we would create something one night for a special. Every Saturday night, Friday, Saturday night, we had to make a special. And you're your traditional sabuco milanese, right? Ooh, Which are you're the I trinity with the, you know, the onions. And the, but we change it up. We make that night we're going to make a Sicilian style. Yeah. Onion, sage with, you know, deglazed or marsala wine and, you know, nice veal stock and served with, you know, uh, saffron fettuccine. And they come up to us like, this was great tonight, but it's, you can't you can't repeat this all the time. So we need consistency. Oh. Like, what the fuck? What consistency? I'm just creating art here. Everybody's happy. That's right. Everybody went home with the greatest meal they ever had. Mm-hmm. We can't put that on the menu. You can't make that anymore because we can't repeat that. Right. And that was just constant, constant until it became a business. You know what uh, I mean? Everything was business. Yeah. Everything was weighed. Everything was calculated. And yeah, my, my brother never lost that fire, though. He just didn't give a shit. Consistency? Fuck you. I'll just reinvent it every time I do it. Yeah. Because it was great every time he did it. So now um, I'm back to cooking again. But I'm I'm obsessed with foods I've never had before. I'm learning how to cook Thai food. I've mastered the art of the wok. I've got a big burn in my arm to show you. The other day I was seasoning I saw, You wok. know what? I saw that. I was wondering. <laughs> Look at that. I was, I, was, I was seasoning our wok in a 600-degree oven. Oh, jeez. Oh, my God. <laughs> And I and I put it on, on top of the stove and I walked into the walk. And the best part is I'm I hear something. Like what the fuck is that? <laughs> I look over. And, like, oh. <laughs> and I was like the enthusiasm was off the charts. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was cussing the Mandarin and Cantonese. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, back on the subject at hand. Actually, but we're getting it. You get to it. You know what book are you enthusiastic about? Yeah, so I, I, I like Bolaños 2666. I think this thing has, has meant a lot to me. And, and it's a long book. It's really five novels. Where the first part of the book is about some German, some, some critics looking into an obscure German novelist, you know, and, and it goes to another thing. You end up in, in, in Juarez, a fictionalized Juarez, where these women are dying all over the place. And it's just, it is, it is a book that you start on one thing and realize that the one thing you started with wasn't what the book was about until you get to the end and it all flips over on its head and again it's it's a magnificent thing it's one of those things you can be like well I, i'm not going to read a 1200 page novel do it i'm gonna do, do it. it and don't bitch about it and with a big book like that you can't oh. know until you get into it you know like mm-hmm. you gotta just they gotta pick it up and then you gotta open it up to page one and you're going to be sitting there for a while. Cool. Lovely book. Great, greatest book, in, in my view, in the last 30, 40 years. The dog came in the kitchen and <laughs> stole the crust of bread. And the cook up with the ladle and beat him till he was dead. And all the dogs came running. Sorry. <laughs> this is the time to remind our listeners that you're listening to the Acme Writing Academy, the Acme of Writing Academies. Acme Writing Academy, except no substitute.
Yes. Go, go. Go, go. Go, go. Let's go. Yeah, why not? Ah. <laughs> there you go. That was, that was, <laughs> one, that was a one-minute version of Waiting for Godot in case you wanted. <laughs> I think I think I... I think I like it. This could be a new Acme feature. One minute version. Of- <laughs> <laughs> it's like charades. Kind of. Right. Uh, I have lots of favorite books, but I think probably the one that's probably been on my mind most in the last couple of years has been Madame Bovary. And, you know, I was reading about this and I forget what professor it was that, that was raising this point. Just a second. I'm going to take this moment to remind you that you're listening. <laughs> He's no, going to spank he, he his kids. Book so much, he just had to run outside and like beat his head against a tree or something. <laughs> he needed to get closer to the thing that makes paper, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you guys could hear me. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, how's your head? Yeah. How's, how's, your, head? how's your head? How's your right. head? <laughs> Nothing. Never, never well, mind. No, no, don't laugh at my expense and not tell me why. Oh, you'll find well, out. You, uh, yeah, you'll find out. I remember in high school reading a lot of this classic stuff, and it was very, very serious. And now, later in life, post-MFA, I read, like, you know, Nabokov and Melville and stuff. Borges. He's hysterical. I never got yeah, the humor. Guy. Never got the yeah. humor. And now it's like, oh, my God, this is, like, gut-busting. Nabokov, Pale Fire, good oh, lord! It's like the ultimate, you know, satire of academia. It's just, it's hysterical. Moby Dick is a funny book. Oh, extremely funny. You know, I think humor. When you laugh, when a, a human being laughs biologically, that is an extrusion of enthusiasm, right? Usually, you're, you're expressing this eruptive enthusiasm for the moment when you laugh. There's Magnuson trying not to laugh. <laughs> I was, yeah, you caught me on the word extrusion, actually. I, I was wondering if that, is that even a word? Yeah, I was like, man, you know. Brilliantine. Yeah, like, did, I, did, did I make that up? <laughs> well, I'm glad you're expressing enthusiasm for my word. <laughs> oh. I think that maybe we're not up to discussing great books. Maybe that maybe that's the best way to go about it. You know, you know, really, we're talking about like what's the intention of writing a great book? What's your intention? Writing it down in our little online discussion, and I always think like that anybody who intends to do something great can kiss my ass. You know, it's not about that. That's what I think too. I think well, you got to just sit down and try to, to buy a sentence. Great. You know, a lot yeah, of it has you to buy the theme you pick. The theme. Yeah, I mean. He, I mean, there's such a gringo mentality. Like everything's got to be great, magnificent, at the top of the list, and all that kind of shit. <laughs> or Latin America, right? It's, it's like, uh, el libro más grande de, de la historia? And they're like, I don't know, my ass. <laughs> Mi culo. Because <laughs> everyone has their own taste, you know. But Latin America, the problem that we have there with, you know, with great books is that they're part of the, you know, there's a book that you have to memorize parts of in Argentina in grade school called Martin Fierro which is the story of the gauchos, the cowboy story, you know, and it was before the fences went up, 
and they couldn't cross oh. the ranges anymore. You know, the oh, Creole yeah. gaucho and all this mm. bullshit. The best part, the guy who wrote it never rode a fucking horse in his life. You know, you're taught that myth as part, part of your identity, but the kids are Argentina. These kids are all smart ass like the kids today anyway. You know, I think, I think really what we have to look at asking what the great books are and going into this, it's sort of, I hate to, you know, there are no stupid questions, but in a way that, that might be one of them. Yep. You know, it might be like, well, we're, we're asked like, what is this thing? And there's no way to quantify it across any, across any spectrum of one culture alone. You can't decide what's right. a great thing. What's not a great thing. No. You know, the whole idea of great books and greatness, you know, maybe it's a gringo thing. It's got to be. I don't know. Maybe you just got to love what you're doing. If you love the work you're doing, well, then then God go with you. Maybe it'll be great. Maybe that book you read was great. Maybe somebody told you it was a great book and you read it and it was still great. Or maybe somebody was a great book tells you it's a great book and it wasn't. And I I think the same is true of writing, though. You know, like you don't have to do one thing or another. You just have to be passionate about it. There you go. Keep going after it. And if nobody cares in the end, well, nobody cared in the end, but you still did something worthwhile with your time. Well done. Well said. <coughs> and I think, you no. know what? I think we ought to just go out on that. I, you know. I think so, too. We, yeah. let's, just, let's just say goodnight because. I just want to say okay. one thing. Read, right. I think just read it. You know, the best thing you can say to anyone, read it all. Read as much as you can. Be, something is going to take you where the next day you're going to pick up, you can get behind a typewriter or, or a typewriter on your computer or take out the legal pad. And you're going to start writing. You're going to start writing. I think that's what it is. That's it's right. It's like taking that breath. It's like it's that breath that you're always taking. That's what reading, and that's what books are to me, and stories. There yeah. it is. There it is. All right. Well, let's say goodnight here. This has been Acme Writing Academy with Bob Clark, Mike Magnuson, Marcello Vasquez, Jim Frank. We're out of here. Thank you for joining us. Have a pleasant rest of your day, and happy writing. Happy writing.